Well, I want to invite everybody, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We are continuing our study there. We're nearing the end. We're in chapter four today, beginning that chapter. I, I, I am just amazed at uh, how life just always offers great illustrations, like we don't even have to try. So this morning, we showed up, and uh, the worship team is doing their thing, and everybody's kind of getting ready, and the screen goes out. What is the first emotion, if you're Kevin Perry, <laughs> that you think you might feel? Fear? Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll, I'm just going to be real transparent. I think I would get angry because things are spinning out of control and we've got, we've got hundreds of people showing up. We've got things to do and things to say, things to show, lyrics to be read and sung. Like We've got a lot going on here and it's out of our control. That's kind of maddening, isn't it? Well, we have got a great opportunity this morning to learn about anger, and very specifically, anger management. So as we've been going through the book here and seeing Jonah's story, we've seen him running and sleeping and drowning and praying and preaching, and today we get to see him raging. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. A literal translation of that might be this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Jonah is seeing red. And in verse 1, all we find out is it displeased Jonah. So what's the it factor here? What was it? that just sent uh, Jonah over the edge. Well, look back at the last verse of chapter three, all right? When God saw that they, speaking of the Ninevehs, um, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. How many of you people saw the movie uh, Inside Out? Like with all the little emotions, right? Uh, animated. And do you remember anger? It looks like a little, you know, uh, fire plug or something, you know. He's red and fire shooting out of his head. And like he's always just raging. So I want you to imagine Jonah as anger... And what really sets him off is after he preaches this message, these people repent. Like, isn't that what prophets do? Don't they tell people, hey, you're on the wrong path. You better get on the right path, which would mean you need to repent. And then they do. And then God says, you know what? I'm going to withhold the wrath that you deserve because you turned from your ways. I mean, wouldn't that be a great day for a prophet? But you got to see Jonah as anger, exploding. 
it raises the question for all of us, like, what makes you mad? I mean, sometimes it can just be driving down the street and somebody's just going a little slower than you think they ought to. Or maybe you're standing in a line somewhere and it's just not moving fast enough. You got to get somewhere. It could be a, a friend or a spouse or a child who says something disrespectful, insensitive, harmful to you. Like, what is it that really gets under your skin that blows your stack? And how long does it take for you to get there? When and where does that emotion show up? Our environment certainly does trigger the emotions that we feel, but there are far greater forces at work that fuel that anger than just our environment. See, that's the easy thing. The easy thing is to point to our circumstances and say, that made me angry. When in reality, guess what? You make you angry. Now, here's what I mean by that. I mean that there is stuff in you, stuff that you care about, stuff that's important to you, stuff that you really think matters. And when that stuff gets threatened or hindered, obstructed, dismissed, it makes you angry. So in many ways, your emotion tells you a whole lot more about you than it does about your environment. It's an important lesson that we can learn from Jonah. Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, describes anger this way. He says, anger is the energy of desire and the willingness to reach for the desire to be satisfied. Authentic anger is a caring feeling, telling us that something matters. Anger then creates movement. Tim Keller says something similar to that. He says, anger is love in motion. Have you ever thought of anger that way? Anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. If you think about the times that Jesus was angry, think about what mattered to him. Think about love in motion. Early church father John Chrysostom says this, basically helping us understand that anger all by itself isn't bad. He says, he that is angry without cause sins. He who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. So, there probably are some things in this world, things in life, things that really matter that ought to make us mad. The real challenge for us is discerning which is which and when our anger might be out of bounds. Really, anger is morally neutral all by itself. Think of it like a gauge on your dashboard. You know when you're driving down the road and that, that stinking engine service light comes on and you start to feel something about that? Like that poor little light, that little gauge, it's just telling you something. I mean, don't kill the messenger, right? 
It's saying something under the hood is wrong. You ought to check that out. That's what our emotions do. And no emotion less than anger. It tells you something is going on underneath the hood. And you might want to check it out to make sure that that emotion doesn't drive you in a destructive direction. Tim Keller encourages us to ask a question when we feel that spark of anger. What is it that you care about so much that you feel compelled to defend it? It's a great question when you and I begin to feel anger, and it will expose or reveal whether or not that thing is really worth all the energy that we're giving it. Let's get back to Jonah in verse 2. He clarifies what set him off environmentally. So let's see what he uh, says here. He's praying again, so it's been since chapter 2 in the belly of the fish. He's praying again. Here's what he says. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I just knew it. (laughs) Remember, Think a little anger there, fire shooting out of his head, right? It just, like the, it just doesn't make sense. What he's saying and what he's feeling seems totally at odds with itself. Jonah is actually drawing from Exodus 34. And there are a number of other places where his words show up. But the the scene is Moses, after Israel has made the golden calf and lost their minds. Remember, God wanted to destroy them. Moses prayed for them. God relented. Uh, Moses had broken the two stones that had the Ten Commandments, so he has to go back up and get another set. So he's with God, and God passes before him, and here's what God says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? It is interesting to me that Jonah left off the end of that verse. Like he really wanted to emphasize God's goodness as an accusation against him, a critique. So Jonah is obviously familiar with the character of God. He says he's gracious, which is giving good to those who don't deserve it. He's merciful, which means he withholds wrath or punishment that is deserved. He's slow to anger, patient, long-suffering, a holy God with unholy people, 
abounding in steadfast love. We need to imagine a tsunami of love. That's what it's describing. And it's loyal, faithful, covenant love based upon God's promises. And then he relents from disaster. Wherever he finds repentance, he draws back his justice. Peter wrote of this in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Can you imagine if God just brought the hammer the second you and I stepped out of line? I don't know that there'd be a lot of us in here today. (laughs) Here's why. He says he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. And that's the heart that Jonah is most definitely missing. So Jonah pronounces his disapproval of how God Almighty is dispensing grace and mercy on the planet he created. It's interesting that uh, Jonah says he voiced his disapproval while yet in his country. I don't remember that from the story. If I remember right, God said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah just ran. (laughs) I don't remember him having any kind of conversation with God about that. He just took off, hopped on a ship to Tarshish. In uh, Jonah's first prayer, if you remember, he was celebrating the salvation of God. Do you remember that? Remember, salvation comes from the Lord. He found me down in the deep where he sent me, by the way, and he pulled me up and gave me life. Praise God. And yet when God extends that same salvation to the Ninevites, now he's critiquing it. What's going on here? It's definitely more than environmental. What we're starting to do is is peer into the stuff under the hood that has really prompted this anger in this prophet. There are three major problems. I'm sure there's more, but uh, these came to mind. First of all, Jonah's heart is saturated with contempt instead of gratitude. See, even though God did save him, he forgot it. He he forgot that he deserved to die multiple times. And yet God saved him. You would think that that would create in him a heart of gratitude, but, but maybe he doesn't have gratitude because his heart is filled more with entitlement. That leads us to our second problem. Jonah believes he is a deserving recipient of God's grace and the Ninevites are not. Now, doesn't that sort of contradict the idea of grace? Unmerited favor. You can't deserve it if you get it. You got it for some other reason than you. And yet Jonah is making a distinction between himself and the Ninevites, like somehow he deserves grace and they don't. So he has a much higher view of himself than he should and a much lower view of the Ninevites than he should. It's honestly making his prophetic ministry a real struggle. 
Problem number three, Jonah believes he is better qualified to direct the redemptive activity of God than God is. So Jonah has taken upon himself. Now, again, we're getting down into what really matters to Jonah. Well, he's given himself a divine prerogative. Like he believes that he is best suited to pass judgment in this broken world. And what has happened is God, how could God do this to him? God actually steps in and acts like God. And he removes his wrath from a people that Jonah thinks deserve it. How dare God do that without first checking in with him? So Jonah's autonomy is what's being threatened. That's what he's so angry about. Is things aren't going the way he thinks they ought to go with the uh, the people that he has uh, faced. We must not confuse the image of God that we have been given with the authority of God only God can possess. Those are really easy to get confused. See, we've all been given the image of God and that is a profoundly valuable, significant thing. It puts us over all other parts of creation. But if we get confused, we begin to associate the image of God in us with the authority of God. And he's the only one that has it. We're all stewards. We serve him. This is his world. It's not ours. I want to point your attention to Jeremiah 18. There's a great description here of how God acts like God. Just listen to this, okay? Jeremiah 18, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, Can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation... Now, Jonah surely would have known these words... And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does what is evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. 
return everyone from his evil way. That sounds kind of like what Jonah said to Nineveh. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. I think there may be a little bit of a misunderstanding about God's sovereignty. See, we tend to apply it only to what God makes happen. So in other words, for God to be sovereign means he just dictates literally everything. Like you do what God makes you do. I think this seems to suggest that what sovereignty means is that God sets up the ground rules. Now, he literally can make anything happen that he wants to make happen, but in his sovereignty, he creates this space where you and I respond to the rules and to the relationship. And nothing that happens in that kind of framework can in any way thwart the ultimate will of God. That's sovereignty. And that's what Jonah is bumping up against. What's, what's bothering him is that God did what he didn't expect or want God to do. And so once again, it raises a great question for us. Like, what do you do when God does or doesn't do what you expect him to do? How do you respond to that? And life is full of opportunities. I mean, when you get favor, blessing, success, prosperity, whatever it might be, you probably don't have much of a problem there, do you? But what about when the hard things come along? Health, job. We just heard about a hurricane blew this family's world away just three months after they moved in, after losing their house the first time two years ago. Like, what do you do in that place with the expectations you put upon God? Will Rogers says this, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. Jonah's unbridled emotion is taking him to the worst of places. We find that in verse 3. It's rage and resignation. Look what he says to God. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. I'd say that's rock bottom. The prophet is saying that seeing God dispense his grace to those that Jonah has seemed unworthy, or has deemed unworthy, that's actually worse than death to him. It tells you a lot about how he even views the value or significance of his own life. It's just dispensable. If God doesn't do what I want him to do or expect him to do, then just end my life. I'd rather not be here. Buried beneath the assumption that someone is deserving or undeserving of grace, like the Ninevites, obviously, as I said earlier, Jonah believes he is deserving. 
So he's got his own criteria for the way things ought to work and how God ought to proceed in his redemptive plan. And God has gotten off the script. And so Jonah would rather die than live in a world where God is in charge. Now just think about that for a minute. What would life in this broken world be like if God weren't in charge? That's a sobering thought. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Imagine if that were true. Eugene Peterson translates this prayer. If you're not going to kill them, then kill me. This is a prophet of God. And his anger has so blinded him that he thinks that death is the answer versus coming under the life-giving authority of his creator. There's something about rage that makes us feel powerful, especially when we feel vulnerable. So a lot of times we'll just let that rage just burn because it makes us feel like we actually can control things when in reality we can't. And that's the thing about rage is no matter how much we give ourselves to it, it can't ever completely erase that nagging sense that this world and everything that's in it and God himself are out of our control. So what Jonah does is in that place, he says, just kill me rather than Lord, I submit. I just come to you and I, I give myself to you, your way, your will, whatever you please. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to receive that because that is really living, even when my circumstances are not what I wish they were. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Remember, the Lord is slow to anger and he's trying to help his prophet slow down. So he asks him, an incredibly powerful question, a great question for you and for me when we feel that anger beginning to stir in our hearts. The Lord says in verse four, do you do well to be angry? Or you could say, do you have any right to be angry? And I'm not sure that the Lord is saying the emotion of anger is wrong. He's like, again, look under the hood. Maybe the cause of your anger is wrong. And then the Lord would, of course, say, I can help you with that. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, be angry and do not sin. So there must be the possibility of feeling the emotion of anger and yet doing so without sinning. Um, it was interesting to me to think about Cain. You know, God asked Cain a similar question. Do you remember? Both he and his brother Abel brought a sacrifice to God. God accepted Abel's, rejected Cain's, and Cain got mad. 
So he's starting to feel some anger. The Lord comes to him, Genesis 4, verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Look what the Lord does. He says to Cain, why are you angry? I used to read that phrase as if, Cain, you shouldn't be angry. Stop it. But I've come to understand that question as one of illumination. Hey, hey, uh, Cain, you're angry. Have you thought about why? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So when Cain was angry, sin was only crouching at the door. It had not yet devoured him. And and God was warning him, cautioning him. He didn't listen and took the life of his brother. How do we respond when sin is crouching at the door in the context of our anger? Uh, Tim Keller offers some great insight around anger management so that we can respond well when we feel that. And it, it fits really well with Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, which... I just mentioned the phrase, be angry and do not sin. And then he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here's three actions that we can take in order to manage this emotion that can so easily get out of control. First of all, he says, admit it. Admit it. It was interesting, as as strong as anger can make us feel, admitting it can make us feel very vulnerable, can't it? If I tell you that what you did made me angry, I'm sort of opening myself up. That's a great thing because now we can see it and we can talk about it. We can do the second thing. We can analyze it and really understand what's fueling it to begin with. And we may discover as we do that analysis that the core beliefs that are driving it are off base. And then we can come and we can alter it. And we don't alter it by self-will. It's not just a stop it. Don't be angry. It's what truth is there that I know that God has revealed to me? How does that truth change the way I see what I see? Only the truth will transform how you respond to those feelings of anger when they arise. When you begin to say, Lord, I want to be angry about the things that really do matter, that do have eternal significance, not just those things that are inconvenient or frustrating. Here's a better prayer 
I think, for Jonah. It comes out of Psalm 139. And, and what we have been trying to do is to, is to uh, not be too hard on Jonah, but learn from his failures. So we do need to recognize Jonah is from Israel. Israel has been horribly oppressed by Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. It's very understandable that he would feel some animosity to them. But when God said, go to Nineveh, he has to set his feelings about that aside because God has plans for Nineveh. And he, Jonah doesn't know what they are, but he knows his God. He quoted his, God's own description of himself. So he goes to Nineveh in light of what he knows about God and he leaves the results to God who has authority to do whatever he wants to do. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, I, I think this would have worked great for Jonah. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. See, the, the, the psalmist is jealous for God's glory. That's what he's angry about. He says, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? See, th this psalmist isn't worried about himself. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his God. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now here's the protection. He also prays right after that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, if my thoughts or emotions, how I see all of this, if in any way that is out of alignment with you, show it to me and then help me change so that I can be in perfect alignment with your heart, your will, and your ways. As a so what, I want to finish with a, a story of a hymn. It's a hymn that I'm sure you're very familiar with. You've probably heard it a thousand times. You may not have heard the story behind uh, its origin. This guy named Horatio Spafford, and he uh, was a wealthy businessman in uh, Chicago um, around the time of D.L. Moody, if you've heard of him, great evangelist. And so uh, Spafford was very involved with his church, had a real heart for ministry. So just a lot of great stuff. Life was going really well. And then in the Chicago fire, the great Chicago fire, he lost all of his real estate holdings. It was absolutely devastating to he and his family. Then a month after that, one of his children, a son of his, died. I think it was from scarlet fever. Life was not going his way. That's an understatement. In uh, 
maybe as a distraction or diversion or something, he and his wife and their four girls decided to take a trip to Europe with D.L. Moody to be a part of one of his evangelistic crusades. So they scheduled their trip. The day came for them to depart and Spafford had to stay behind because something happened with his business that kept him there. So he sent his wife and their four girls along ahead of him. A couple of days later, he received a message and it was from his wife and it said these words, saved alone, what will I do? All four of their girls drowned as a result of an accident uh, in the middle of their trip. Two ships collided and they lost their four girls. Spafford got on the next ship that he could to head over and join his wife. And as he was making his way, the captain of his ship invited him up to the bridge and he said, this is the place where your family's ship went down. And it has been said that it was in that place that he penned the words to the hymn, it is well with my soul. Let me read to you the first stanza. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Perhaps those are some good words for you and for me when we find ourselves giving ourselves to the emotion of anger. Take a moment, reflect on that. We're gonna sing these words and may God use them to encourage our hearts today.